Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. All right. Hey, everyone. Today we're here with Ryan Berg. Ryan is uh, with Avenues for Youth and Avenues for Youth is a longtime partner with the Pride Institute. So we're excited to show our listeners what resource they are to our community. So Ryan, I'll let you take it away. What does Avenues for Youth do? Who do they serve? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So uh, Avenues for Youth has been around for over 25 years and we work with young people uh, ages 16 to 24. So we partner with them in helping them achieve their dreams, uh, typically around housing. So we provide housing resources uh, through shelter and transitional living programs, through host homes, uh, through collective housing models, and through a rapid rehousing program as well. Um, so we started really because uh, the, the, our founder uh, was a young person who had experienced homelessness herself, recognized that there was uh, a scarcity of supports for youth specific programming and recognize that need and created um, avenues for youth. And we started as a shelter and we have grown uh, into five programs. So I kind of touched on what we do, but I'll, I'll name them. So we have uh, the Minneapolis Avenue Shelter, uh, which is off of Oak Park Avenue. And it's our longest running program. It's been around uh, since for over 25 years. And it really is a 24 hour um, support for young folks. So uh, folks uh, who live there can stay up to their 21st birthday or for 18 months, whatever comes first. Wraparound services and support. So we have uh, integrated health and wellness team around mental health and we have a nurse on site. We have case management. Uh, we have um, youth workers who are there 24 hours a day, three meals a day, um, you know, beds, uh, programming, all kinds of great stuff. So uh, in all of our programs, youth get to determine their own goals, and we work with those young people on, on um, figuring out what are the steps we need to take in order to get there. Uh, we have Brooklyn Avenues, which was the first suburban uh, youth shelter of its kind in the state. It's in Brooklyn Park. Um, and we learned from our older building what we needed to do for our, our newer building. And one of those things was to create individual rooms instead of shared rooms and gender neutral bathrooms. So all youth would feel affirmed and not have to censor aspects of who they are in order to get their needs met. Um, so it's similar to the um, Minneapolis Avenue shelter that I just discussed, but there's those kind of like little tweaks uh, in there. Um, and then we have uh, Avenues for Young Families, which is a rapid rehousing program. So about 40% of youth experiencing homelessness are parents themselves, but can't stay in youth specific service uh, shelters with their children. Uh, so this is an apartment program where youth get vouchers and um, to live with their family in an apartment. And then we provide, um, you know, independent living skills work, um, parenting skills work, wraparound services and support. Um, after the two years that they're in this program, they can take over the lease if they're feeling ready to or move into a different apartment. Uh, and then Aboule, which is our newest program, is for and by BIPOC communities. So uh, BIPOC communities, el elders in the community open their homes and then provide supports to uh, BIPOC youth. And then Connect, which is the program that I run, which is um, a community-based response to queer and trans youth homelessness. Uh, so folks in the community open up their homes, provide food and shelter. We provide wraparound services and support. 
this is the longest running host-owned program in the country. Uh, we've been going for 25 years, and it was really born out of the LGBTQI community in the Twin Cities, recognizing that youth that were queer and trans going into shelter were experiencing harassment, violence, and discrimination based off of who they were, and that we needed to do something about that because they preferred to sleep on the streets and actually accessing those spaces. Um, so the community came together, did a, did a feasibility study, and recognized uh, the hosto model as a, as a good fit. And um, it's really, like I said, community born and driven. Um, it's all youth determined, all of our programming. So youth are collaborators in this process with us. Uh, and the idea is really simple. There are some folks with resources and there are some folks who may be in need of resources and we try to connect those folks. Um, and we do a lot of work around, um, you know, minimizing the mis misuse of power within that context. So um, we're ensuring that there's not, um, you know, a savior complex uh, with hosts that are um, opening their homes. And we are really working to elevate the narrative of um, youth determination and um, agency. That's incredible. I mean, an incredible resource for our community. And, um, you know, Kaylee and I always talk about how like fortunate we are here in the state of Minnesota to like have resources and an abundance of resources for things like this. Um, one thing that I want to point out, and I wonder um, in specific, specifically in relation to that last point about LGBTQ youth, trans youth, have you seen a higher need or a higher demand for housing for trans youth in these last few years, given, you know, the consistent attacks that are going on, like, let's say in the state of Texas, you know, obviously we're in Minnesota, but um, have you seen an increased need for housing for trans youth? I think um, we've definitely seen it in terms of uh, COVID and the pandemic, for sure. So um, most shelter spaces for the past two and a half years have been at about half capacity just because congregate settings needed to make some changes to ensure safety for all. Um, so that's definitely affected folks. Um, and yeah, I think the kind of political volatility, uh, to put it politely, I guess, um, is definitely affecting uh, young folks. Um, most recently, I would say in the past three months, we've been we've been getting calls from young folks who have started to come out either as trans or gender nonconforming or gender expansive in their home and then being rejected due to that and then needing um, a safer space to settle in, feel safe, um, focus on themselves and, and on their goals. So I definitely have seen that. And I've also seen um, and listened to young people in our program talk about the attack on LGBTQI folks and, and in particular trans and gender nonconforming young folks, um, what they see in the media and how that's affected their mental health. Um, and so we are working, you know, we work with partners like Reclaim and Rainbow Health to ensure that young people feel supported and um, assured in that way. We also have partnered with Family Tree Clinic recently to create an LGBTQI drop-in for youth. Um, and so that's really another kind of safer space uh, for young folks to come and just be themselves. All the programming there is youth determined. We just did a cooking class this past Tuesday. We hold it at Family Tree on Tuesdays from three until six. And there's two different um, segments of, of that program. So there's for um, minors, so 13 to 17 year olds and then 18 to 24 year olds. Uh, and uh, it's been it's proven to be a really great resource uh, for young folks um, just to you know show up, be themselves, kind of you know the, the grappling with their identity in a safer space and find like-minded folks and um, and adult allies who they can and 
really open up to. It's been it's been pretty powerful to bear witness to that transformational change. And then Ryan, you are also um, an author, uh, which I deeply admire um, and I'm interested in. Um, so your book, No House to Call My Home, can you talk about that experience and what you took away from um, gathering all that data and how long did it take to write? What research did you do? Yeah, so No House to Call My Home, Love, Family, and Other Transgressions is the full name of the book. Uh, came out in uh, 2015 and paperback in 2016. Um, and that was really, I mean, the impetus behind that book was really around um, how to start talking about LGBTQ youth homelessness and youth that were um, touched by systems uh, in ways that, you know, elevated their voices, created a platform for their voices. It was, you know, I think LGBTQ youth homelessness in particular is an invisible issue. A lot of folks don't recognize that there's this huge overrepresentation of uh, queer and trans youth in the homeless youth population, as well as in foster care. Um, so why the disparities? And then also uh, the, the book touches on how systems um, aren't providing, um, despite all of this evidence that shows that there's this overrepresentation of queer and trans youth, there, there aren't many um, culturally responsive um, or, or uh, trainings for staff or foster care workers, homeless youth workers. Um, so the importance of creating those safer spaces and, and, and those safer, safer resources was kind of the impetus behind the book. I worked in New York City um, as a case manager for uh, queer and trans youth that were in foster care in a congregate home group home setting. And the book really chronicles my experience uh, during that time. Um, you know, even though it takes place in New York, the stories are universal across the United States around um, how systems are oppressive to young folks who are queer and trans identified and, and that we need to do more as adult allies to, um, to ensure that our politicians are, are funding programs um, that are LGBTQI specific um, and that we're creating um, competent and safer spaces so young people can bring their full selves, not have to censor aspects of who they are in order to get their needs met. They have to face enough discrimination, violence and harassment on the streets daily. They shouldn't have to face that when they come home as well. I think that's such an important topic to touch on because I think a lot of times in our society today, um, moving forward, you know, we see more rights for gay LGBTQ people. And so we think, oh, it's accepted. We're fine. No, it's not hard to come out anymore. It's not hard to be an LGBTQ person. Like they're celebrated. And I think a lot of times we do like miss the fact that there are is still people out there who are not a fan of this community and don't believe we should have the same rights as everybody else. Yeah. And to echo that, I just watched this. I, I'm just getting out of quarantine, so I've seen everything on Netflix and, and Hulu and everything. But um, I just watched this new queer show. It's um, called Heartstoppers. And it's this really beautiful. I mean, I cried like a million times watching the show and it's only eight episodes. But and I just remember thinking like, God, that's so cool that they finally showed the joy of what it is to be queer and the possibility of what it is to be queer. Yet it does, I couldn't help but think like, man, that is just not the way it is for certain people. And especially depending on where you live, what, what do you, what would you say to somebody, I guess, who would say like, oh, like there's no difference between culturally specific care and everything. We all deal with shame. We all deal with problems. What would you say to that? Yes, we all deal with shame. We all deal with problems. <clears throat> the degree and intensity in which we deal with that, I think is different based off of, um, you know, social acceptance. Uh, and, you know, even though we live in a blue state and a, in a blue city um, where there seems to be a, there, there is a lot of programming, there's a lot of support, there's a lot of queer and trans specific um, agencies and, um, and, and resources. 
that doesn't mean that there's going to be that young person who is uh, struggling within a family that may not be culturally accepting of, of that young person. Um, and even though we have these resources, they not be, may not be able to make those connections themselves. So it's super important that we're doing as much outreach as possible. I, you know, I think the importance of, of, of elevating that narrative of joy is super important. Um, and I think that's something that we, we really try to do within um, Connect and within all of our, of our programming, which is centering relationship, right? And I think there can be so much joy in getting to know someone and be your full self in the presence of others. And it's, it's really just a joy to bear witness to young people who are living with adult allies and um, coming out of their shell for the first time, being able to explore pronouns and names, um, ways of gender expression. Uh, it's just, it's really, um, yeah, it's really wonderful to, to witness. And helping to create that safer space is just is such a joy. So yeah, joy is such a huge part of you know healing, right? Community and connection is such a huge part of healing and um and, and finding your value uh, as an individual. And I think you know that's something we strive to do within the, the program itself. Yeah. Um, and then so you've been doing this work for a really long time. Obviously, you worked in New York City, which is I imagine you know, is a completely different world than, you know, Minneapolis as far as um, this issue goes. But um, how has it changed over the years? What is What are some problems adolescents and queer kids are facing today that is maybe different or worse than 15 years ago? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the biggest thing that I've noticed is with more visibility within the trans and gender nonconforming community comes more of a backlash from the other side. So, um, you know, a lack of understanding. Um, I think there's this kind of misogynistic um, white male um, dominant viewpoint that uh, pushes back so heavily on um, what they believe is possible, like trying to define another person's identity for them. It seems to be the narrative coming from the other side. And that is so toxic and painful. And uh, corrosive to young folks. And so, you know, what we've seen, uh, you know, I think back 15 years ago, the pushback was really around um, gay marriage, right? There was same, uh, same sex marriage was, was kind of like the dominant narrative around uh, uh, LGBTQ rights. Right now, it's, it's the attack on our youth, right? It's attack on uh, trans and gender nonconforming young folks, primarily. Um, and those who are hurt most by that are the ones that are living at the intersection of um, BIPOC and, and queer ident identities. Um, and so that reverberates and the collateral consequences of that are huge, right? Mental health, chronic and pervasive mental health issues uh, can, can stem from that. Misuse of substances, um, homelessness, uh, instability. You know, I think all of the um, adversity that's attached to that um, has um, huge ramifications on the mental uh, and physical well-being of our young folks. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the attack really has, has, I think, turned its focus on our youth. And uh, I think we should all be doubling down and supporting our young folks as much as we can. What are some ways we can do that as allies, as even adult members of the LGBTQ community? How can we support these kiddos? I think um, kind of I think of things in the like, three P's. So politically, how can we reach out to our legislators to make sure that they're educated on the issues um, that our young folks are facing. So do they know that 
40% of all homeless youth in experience, experiencing homelessness are uh, LGBTQ identified, but make up only 6% of the, the population, general population. Um, what LGBTQ specific programming and supports can, can they be advocating for in a systemic way? Um, fighting for more money to ensure that we have more um, LGBTQI um, culturally responsive programming and supports. Um, supporting programming like um, Queer Space Collective, which is a mentoring program for young folks. Um, I'm on the uh, program committee for, for that, and it's a wonderful program. It's only a year old. And um, adult uh, LGBTQI folks are, are matched with um, youth that are queer and trans identified. And, you know, that, that intergenerational um, support is so necessary, especially if they're not getting that kind of support from their parents um, or from family members or adults in their lives. I think that's incredibly important. Um, so professionally is the other P and that's like, what can folks do about um, sharing a, about programming like connect and avenues and other housing programs reclaim with mental health, rainbow health. How can we get the word out, right? That there are these networks of support um, in, available to our young folks. Uh, so like doing um, employee resource group meetings, um, uh, doing kind of like the, you know, uh, the, lunch talkbacks that a lot of organizations do. Uh, and then personally, so what can we do personally? And I think um, holding info sessions, um, <clears throat> coffee talks, invite friends over for a coffee and <clears throat> some appetizers and discuss these issues in ways in which they can get involved, bring in a speaker um, from an organization to talk about the work that they do and how they need support. You know, a lot of folks are slowly kind of, um, getting back into allowing volunteers to kind of enter their spaces again. Um, so this may be an opportunity for, for folks who want to be involved in some kind of way beyond just like cutting a check, um, but have a more kind of personal impact um, to, to, to kind of begin that process. Yeah, Ryan, thank you so much. Um, lastly, as we close up here, what are ways that people can specifically support avenues for youth? How can we help you all? Yeah, so if folks are interested in, you know, supporting Avenues as an organization, you can go to our website at avenuesforyouth.org, and there are ways to um, either volunteer, um, you can create an info session group for uh, Connect. We're always looking for new hosts, so if someone's interested in opening up their home, I'm happy to talk to them, and they can reach out to me specifically at rberg at avenuesforyouth.org. Um, and then, yeah, uh, that website has a, a wealth of information that folks can kind of parse through and figure out what would make sense to them. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ryan, for being here and chatting with us about Avenues for Youth. It's a great community resource. We're so lucky to have you. Thanks so much. I appreciate the time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. And we'll see you next time.